You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Julie Coleman. Aunt Faye had a very hard life. Um, it started when, well, she, you know, they had a, a, a normal family until she was 16 years old, and her father died of a massive heart attack. He was only 48. So she had to quit school and go to work to help support her family. Then her mother, um, with all the stress of having four children, uh, including a two-year-old, um, and no husband, um, and this was during very hard times back in the 30s and 40s, and so um, she had to quit her uh, job or quit her schooling, high school, and had to go to work to support her family. And then her mother had this nervous breakdown. So their uncle came to live with them, supposedly to help support. But the problem was um, he was an alcoholic and he was a nasty drunk. Uh, my mom used to tell me stories about how they would have to hide the knives when he would come home drunk at night. Very, t- very hard. And they married. She had six kids. And any mother knows that that is talking about a lot of self-sacrifice and suffering. <laughs> and um, they, were, they did not have a lot of money. And um, she lived on the poverty level for most of her life. When her oldest child, my cousin Kathy, was in eighth grade, so there was from eighth grade on down to babies, um, her house blew up. And I mean blew up. It was a gas explosion, and they lost every single thing they owned. There was nothing left. It was just a shell that was left. Um, four of six of her children, as she raised them, had major substance abuse problems. So she went through uh, drugs and alcohol and things with her kids, worrying about those. She had two grandchildren murdered by her daughter-in-law, who was a paranoid schizophrenic. Terrible, terrible tragedy. Her son died at 55 of a heart attack. She has an, a very severely autistic grandson. Um, and not to mention, she had many major health issues that she had to deal with. Now, Aunt Faye had a lot of suffering in her lifetime. Now, if she had lived in the first century, back where Jesus was, she would have been judged for all of that suffering because the theory was, in Jewish thought, was that if something bad was happening to you, it was God's judgment on you, and he was punishing you for your sin. So when bad things happen to people, people would just automatically start referring them to as, as sinners, rather than trying to, you know, support them and help them. So that was kind of the, um, the thought in that time, in, in the first century. Um, and there's an example of that. Um, in John chapter 9, the disciples were asking about a man who was blind from birth, and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So they just had that idea that if something was wrong, that God was judging, and, that, and it was a punishment. Well, last week, uh, Scott covered uh, the passage in Romans 8, 1 to 17, and Paul was reassuring his readers that they were no longer under condemnation, that Jesus' sacrifice had paid um, the price for their sin, and um, they were no longer living in the flesh. Through grace, they had life in the Spirit. They were adopted sons and daughters, heirs with Christ. They've been transferred from death to life. So he had this wonderful truth. But any good Jew would have to think about this for a minute and say, wait a minute, if there's no condemnation, then why is there still suffering? Because suffering is a punishment. And so uh, if we suffer, does that mean something's gone wrong? And how can no condemnation and suffering exist together for a Christian? And so 
Paul had to answer that question because he knew that was going to be in every Jew's mind as they started thinking about having no condemnation. And so he wrote this next section in Romans. Um, We'll have it up on the screen. You can turn to your Bibles if you want. It's Romans chapter 8 and starting at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, all, we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray and ask God's help with this passage. Heavenly Father, we do ask your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts. Help us to understand the intended meaning um, of what Paul wrote here. Help us to glean from it truth that will transform our lives. Um, We just ask your presence here. Lord, don't let me get in the way of the truth that you'd have for each person sitting out there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, will God protect Christians from suffering? I have a friend who um, several years ago, came down with this really weird illness. It was like this, like her body started producing this gel stuff that was attacking her organs. Very bizarre. So she had to go into surgery and get all that gel like sucked out of her body. I don't know all the details, but it was a horrifying illness and it shook her up pretty well. And she told me what shook her up more than even having the illness was the fact that God had allowed this to happen to her. Because she said, I've always claimed Psalm 91. No evil will befall you, nor any plague will come near your tent. So I assumed that meant that I would never have to suffer. That God had saved me from the consequences of sin, no condemnation, and therefore I wouldn't have to suffer. She kind of was echoing a little bit of the Jewish thought of of the day in Jesus' time. Well, it would be great if the Bible did promise us that we would never have to suffer, but it doesn't. As a matter of fact, it kind of promises the opposite. Um, be, um, Paul goes beyond allowing the possibility of a Christian suffering here. If um, Looking at the Greek a little bit, he says, if indeed we suffer with him. Well, there was three kinds of conditional statements that you could make in Greek, if, then kind of statements. One um, was that the, you, you were assuming that the if is false. Another is that you assume that it's uncertain But in this case, and it's called the first class indicative conditional statement, it's assumed to be true. So it would be something like, if we were to paraphrase what Paul is saying, if, and let us assume this is true for the sake of argument, then. So he is assuming not if we suffer, but almost when we suffer. 
And that's what the Greek indicates here. Jesus um, assumed the same thing. He told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. That sounds pretty definite to me. So rather than assuming that trials and suffering are some kind of judgment from God, that we're in sin or we're going in a wrong direction and he's doing something, the Bible teaches us that suffering is a very natural part of following a suffering Savior. For some, rather than some kind of a, a rejection, it identifies us with Christ. So that's the kind of attitude we need to have towards suffering. And what kind of suffering are we talking about? Are we talking about just persecution, suffering in the name of Christ? Or are we talking about general suffering? Well, the, the word Paul is using refers to a whole gamut of sufferings, um, like illness, grief, losing a loved one, hunger, a financial reverse, death, and, of course, persecution. And if we're suffering with Christ, well, Christ suffered too. And he didn't just uh, suffer um, for our sin. He suffered in a lot of different ways by virtue in his coming in the form of sinful flesh. He experienced all the suffering that we do because he had a man's body and he was there um, 100% man, 100% God. So he ex- experienced the very sufferings of this world. And then Paul also talks about creation. He compares our suffering to creation um, with a grand sweeping sense, all of creation, all subhuman level creation is suffering as well under the effect of sin. So that, again, gives us an indication that the suffering that, that he's talking about is not just persecution, but it's suffering in general in our lives. Creation's not what it should be. It's unable to attain the end for what it's made. Yet. <laughs> so then how do we find meaning in this suffering? What is Paul giving us here? Um... What makes our suffering different from people who don't believe in Christ? Um, how is what we're going through going to be different? How does being a Christian make it better? Because obviously it's got to impact it in some way. Well, in this passage, Paul gives us three truths that make suffering endurable. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to go through difficulty, but it does have meaning as adopted children of God. It's not a worthless struggle. So the very first thing that makes suffering endurable, Paul talks about. Suffering is bearable when viewed in the light of glory. And he says it like this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Well, what is that glory? Well, the glory he's talking about, and he makes it clear in verses um, 15 to 16, is our position as adopted children by God. And he told us in verse 15 and 16, You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul echoes that same truth in Ephesians 1.5 and Galatians uh, 4.5. In First Peter, uh, Peter describes that this inheritance as uh, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you our adoption it's a done deal it's already accomplished when we believe in jesus christ we get that position it's it's um it's set in stone it's it's over (laughs) that part um salvation is always completed as a past completed action in verse 15 it says you have received in verse 24, it says, in hope, we were saved. So that part is done. 
while that's true, though, the benefits, the transformations, the ramifications that God started our salvation, at our salvation, they're not complete yet. So there's also an ongoing process that kind of turns the rest of us um, into what God, the new uh, creation that God created within us. The whole thing hasn't been realized. Not yet. There's a, a saying that they, they used to say in seminary all the time, already, not yet. <laughs> and that kind of describes our salvation. What has been done for us already is that we have been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and we are adopted as sons and daughters and we have a place that's secure in heaven. That's done. But there's also things that we can look forward to that have not yet been accomplished in us. Uh, the life that we enjoy is incomplete. It's developing. It's present, but it's not fully worked out. Um, Paul said it like this in Philippians. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15.50, he says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So there's an inheritance that's coming after we uh, leave our bodies. Um, and only when the mortal bodies transform will the life that we have, that we, we possess, become visible. Um, so until then, God is continuing this transformation process because he loves us too much to allow us to remain the same as we were before we were saved. So he's moving in our hearts. He's changing us using the word of God, people's interactions with us, our prayer. Uh, he does all of those things, and he's uh, changing us. And, and the goal in verse 29, uh, just after this passage, is to become conformed to the image of his son. Well, how does that transformation work out? Well, I started thinking about, well, what would be a good picture of that? And I thought of Superman. Because Superman was a guy, mild-mannered Clark Kent, who walked around as a newspaper reporter, doing his job and minding his own business and some, until some crisis came along. So what did Clark do? He jumped into a closet or a phone booth or whatever was handy, and he started ripping off his clothes, right? <laughs> and as he ripped off those layers of clothing the superhero, whom he was all along, gets revealed. We're a little bit like that. Um, as, as God is transforming us, he's getting off layer after layer that's really hiding the transformation that's already happened inside. So it's revealing something that's already present. I also thought of a diamond cutter. <clears throat> a diamond starts off in the rough um, as, you know, interesting looking stone, looks like a piece of quartz to me, but there it is. It's a, it's a rough cut diamond. And then the cutter comes in and he starts to chip away at the edges and he chips away and he makes these uh, facets, these edges until finally the diamond comes into its true form and it can reflect the best, the light that shines on it. You see, and that's what transformation is. God is knocking off all of our rough edges and, and, and suffering is his tool to do it. And what he's doing is he's allowing the brilliance of the potential that we have to really shine through to reflect his light. Someday our identity as sons and daughters in Christ, and as sons and daughters of God, is not going to be shrouded in layers of our old nature. It's going to be revealed. And, uh, but like the hard blows that a diamond has to undergo, it's a painful process sometimes. And it's suffering that God uses to transform us. And the other thing we need to remember about suffering is that Jesus suffered, but his glory only followed 
his suffering. Um, in Philippians 2, it says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The obedience, the suffering came first, and then God gave him glory. And we're following in his footsteps. So we will first have to go through suffering in our lifetimes, but it will reveal the glory that he's going to be giving us later. So when we compare the suffering to the glory, it will be worth it all. Think of it like a scale, one of those weight scales. Or if you, whatever you put on one side, in order for it to be level, they have to equal. Well, if we put the suffering on one side of the scale, and then we heaped up the glory on the other side of the scale, it would go bonk, <laughs> because the suffering would almost be weightless compared to the amazing glory that God has in store for us after the suffering is over. You know, I'm, I'm not much one for pain, or suffering for that matter, so when I had children, I um, made it very clear as I went into the hospital that um, I was the president of the epidural club, and I would like to have an epidural, so please have him standing by for when the pain begins. The first two children I had were um, induced, and so I had the epidural uh, you know, pretty, pretty quickly into the process because it's like hard labor right from the beginning. But with my third pregnancy... I, you know, it, it was kind of mild labor the whole way through until I went into transition, and then, then things started getting serious. I said, epidural time! And they said, oh, no, it's too late. I said, what? <laughs> they said, it's too late. You don't have time. You're going to deliver this baby naturally. Well, I almost got up and punched them all in the face. <laughs> of course, I was in labor, so you'll excuse me. But anyway, so I did. I had Melanie naturally, and I can... Definitely say that the epidural is the way to go. <laughs> but after I had her and I was holding her in my arms, I said to my husband, I will never do that again. And they said, wait a minute, there's another head. You're having twins. <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> and so I went through all this pain and suffering, but I had these two wonderful babies. Well, you know, of course, the first couple of days you love telling your labor story and and all, and, and, uh, but you know, it, it started to fade in comparison when I started having these babies and falling, having them, uh, you know, spending time with them and falling in love with them. So by about two weeks later, I was starting to think, oh, that wasn't so bad. It's worth it. It's worth it. That's what's going to be like when we get to heaven. When the glory is revealed, we're going to think, that was worth it. I'd do it again. If we could weigh them both on that scale, the suffering would look weightless compared to the glory that God is going to give us. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I want you, I want you to notice that he, what, he, what he refers them to. Momentary light affliction. Next slide, Mel. compared to an eternal weight of glory. You see the two comparisons there? Slide again. There you go. <laughs> okay. There's no comparison. In other words, it's a no-brainer. So, suffering is bearable in light of future glory. Well, there's another reason Paul gives us, a second reason, that suffering is bearable in light of 
the hope that we have. The hope that we have. Uh, He says, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly, for in hope we have been saved. There's a lot of groaning going on in this passage. I don't know if you notice groaning three different times. The first one is us groaning, waiting for our adoption as sons. The second is creation groaning, waiting for its redemption out of the curse of sin. And then finally, the Holy Spirit groaning, which we'll get to in a little bit. But Paul's giving us a picture here of creation with the intense kind of groaning that's going on within us. Um, All creation, human and subhuman, was affected at the fall. It's a creation-wide problem. So what he does is he takes creation and he personifies it. He gives creation some human characteristics. It groans. It suffers. It waits. Everything affected by sin is looking for a day when the curse will end. And it will end. And that's what our hope is. Knowing that's true makes suffering bearable. Because suffering is easier or or eased if we know there's an end in sight. Um, I thought of you, Heather, um, this past month. And Sam, you too, because you were suffering in your own way. But um, Heather and Sam were separated for a month because his job didn't finish until uh, February 1st. But they moved up um, because of the, the way the house closings went. Um, in the, in, right before Christmas in December. So they had a month. Um, Sam had a month to be without his wife and family, living with some friends like a hobo. <laughs> and then Heather had a month of three small children all to herself. <laughs> so both of those, I think, um, constitute suffering. But how did Heather get the strength to do it? Well, I was very um, warmed to watch her on Facebook count down the days until Sam would get here. And they would all be together as a family again. And I know Beth, her mom, made a a paper chain that had like a countdown of days that they could just keep taking one off until, you know, the chain would get shorter and shorter until daddy came back. Um, And that made it bearable because they could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I do the same thing for my grandson, Stephen. He hates getting his hair washed. Hates it. And I'm sure that people in the apartment above and below them think that we are doing child abuse whenever we give this kid a bath. He screams, he cries, he's in a panic. Wait, 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 don't do it yet, don't do it yet. He's just like a wreck. So what I've done is, first of all, I've ordered a a shampoo hat from Amazon. But the second thing I've done is I told Stephen, let's count down how many times you have to have water poured over your head. So I'll say we're going to, you know, go down to zero, so three, and I'd rinse off his hair, and then two, and then one. And that made it bearable knowing it wasn't this, um, you know, unlimited pouring of water over his head that's going to come. He only has to do it three times. Well, that's a little bit what Paul's talking about here. He's assured us suffering is not going to last forever. There's an end in sight. Whether we die or whether the Lord returns, it's temporary condition. Jesus told that to his disciples. He said, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. And we can look ahead to an eternity where suffering will not exist. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What's our hope? It's what lies in eternity. What, um, who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And that hope of that kind of a, a life with no suffering, 
That's guaranteed already, and it's guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Um, He connects our already with our not yet. He makes the hope of glory as certain as if it's already ours. He's the guarantee, the seal that allows us our salvation, to rest in our salvation, even in light of continuing sin. Seeing the end in sight means being able to look beyond what's temporary. The Old Testament saints had that in Hebrews. Um, It's what got them through their suffering. It says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on earth, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. So they were able to look ahead, not to what they could see, but what they couldn't see, and that's what gave them hope through the suffering in their lives. Um, Theologian Douglas Moo says this, a Christian views the suffering of this life in a larger, world-transcending context that, while not alleviating its present intensity, transcends it with the confident expectations that suffering is not the final word. Our hope is in the fact that suffering will, con- will eventually end. It's going, uh, and, and it won't last forever. So suffering is bearable in light of future glory that will be revealed, in hope that our suffering will someday be in an end. And then finally, the last point Paul makes is that suffering is bearable because we do not suffer alone. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. In the same way. In the same way that hope sustains us. In the same way that knowing glory is coming sustains us. The Spirit sustains us in the same way. And how does he help? That word help means joining in with to help or to to bear a burden along with. We're going to suffer in our lifetime. Our hope is in eternity. But as we suffer in the here and now, God doesn't leave us to suffer alone. He's with us. He carries us. He supplies the strength. He works through circumstances. He's very aware of the struggle. So what does he do? He comes alongside us so we don't do it alone. I love this verse from Psalm 56. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That idea, that beautiful metaphor of God collecting our tears, knowing every tear that we shed, knowing our suffering so completely. He's aware of us. He's aware of our intimate feelings and thoughts. And sometimes when you're suffering in the midst of it, you don't even know how to pray. (laughs) Um, When my grandson Joseph was born, it was uh, four weeks ago yesterday. Um, he was born, and we are, I guess, well, it's, it's, it's month today. Um, he was born February, January 3rd, but when Daniel came down to deliver the news that he was very, very sick, and they didn't, weren't even sure if he was going to live, and that he might be Down syndrome, that was a lot to handle in <laughs> one little swoop. And that night, as I fell into bed, after being at the hospital the whole evening, watching, you know, you, Lord, you can mess with me don't mess with my children. (laughs) And I really struggled with that, that to see Daniel and Bethany in that kind of pain, it was just, that was the most crushing part of the whole thing for me. And I remember laying there in bed and I I couldn't even pray. I could not pray. And the most I got out of my mouth was, help, (laughs) help me, help me. I didn't even know how to pray. I didn't know what to do. I just I knew I needed him to, to, to give me strength. I knew I couldn't do it in my own strength. But I knew that he could provide what I needed. And so I prayed, help. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. Um, 
But he knows our thoughts, he understands. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. He's with us all the time. He's present. We're not walking a road alone. And it's a road that he's traveled before us. Hebrews reminds us of that. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The Holy Spirit provides not only that constant presence with us, but he also provides prayer support, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. But this is what Paul says. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for saints according to the will of God. The wording, the way that, that comes out in the Greek for Paul, it's, he's not talking about um, like a manner or style or that kind of thing in prayer. He's talking about the content of our prayers, what we are to pray for. Because we, in our short-sightedness, have an inability to really understand what the will of God is at times. And so when we're, we, are, uh, we are not able to do that, the Spirit of God overcomes this weakness with his own intercession. Um, we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession. Our failure to understand God's purposes and plans does not mean that effective, powerful prayer is not taking place because the Holy Spirit is filling that need. So, suffering is bearable when, viewed in the light of glory, when we remember that there's a hope of an eternity without suffering, and finally, when we know that he is with us all the way. In conclusion, I want you to notice something. When we suffer, Paul's told us to keep our focus on these three things. Future glory of God, hope for a better future in the present, and the Holy Spirit's involvement. Do you see where we're not supposed to focus? We're not supposed to focus on our circumstances. And we're not supposed to focus on ourselves, in what we're doing, in our response, our faithfulness, our obedience, our accomplishment. We're to focus on what God has promised and what God is doing on our eternal reward. My Aunt Faye had a tough life. She was, um, she could be a hothead at times. She wasn't perfect. She said things she shouldn't, opened her mouth when she should have kept it shut. <laughs> um, and, uh, but one thing I can say about her is she loved God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She wasn't perfect. Um, but she would have been the first to admit her faults, I can tell you. When she died last year, and my Uncle Bob, her brother, got up at her funeral, and this is what he said. Faye was being transformed every single day, but now she's perfect. The process is complete for my Aunt Faye. She's already experiencing the glory of being an adopted child of God. Her hope is reality. Well, someday, that's going to be true for us as well. 
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.